nations where unarmed forces strike the edge of ecology. Coming out, for those of you that are old hands here, welcome back. Can you believe? Right in this November will be two years since we were last in here. And a lot has happened since then. Well, we won't go into that tonight. I'm sure we're going to be walking around some other things. So, um, what I'd like to do this evening is to, first of all, just say, if you are new to us, thank you for coming. Uh, we are changing times. We have been running, uh, or right, this, the end of this year, we've been running for 30 years. So we've been through a few guises over the years, and um, we've always tried to uh, get people thinking about things that maybe are not thought about enough. And uh, here we are tonight, we're going to talk about 9-11. Now, if you do want to know about our upcoming meetings, if you're not already on our mailing list, uh, over at the back there, there is a sheet. Please do put your email address down, and you'll hear about any future meetings. So uh, do have a look before you go out. And uh, we will be back. We hope to be back, in fact, in November, doing something. Um, and fingers crossed that all is well. So tonight, we're here to welcome in the second part of this evening, Matt Campbell, and uh, that's the reason you're here. But I thought that it would be a good thing to do to begin by looking at why 9-11 still matters and exactly what some of these anomalies are. Now, this is going to be a whistle-stop tour just through some of the issues. Uh, I'm not here tonight to answer the issues necessarily, but I do want to show why some people still believe that the truth of 9-11 has not been told. So we're just going to get a broad overview of that. And some of you I know know this, but some of you I also know are fairly new to this. So hopefully by the end of this evening, uh, you will have a, a very good idea as to just why people still doubt the official story. So 9-11, you know the official story, I'm sure, uh, so we don't need to rank into that too much. But the problem that we have is one of context as much as anything else. So the first thing that I want to begin with is just looking at a little bit of background, because one of the key things that we were told, and are still told, is that nobody saw this coming, and nobody had any idea that anything like this could ever occur. Well, let's just begin uh, back in 1945 then, because we knew that aeroplanes could strike buildings. In 1945, the Empire State Building was hit by a B-25 Mitchell bomber, uh, and it left a pretty sizable hole, as you can see there. Uh, there was fire. The building didn't collapse, interestingly. But it was a foggy night, and it got lost, and, and it hit. And, and that was all there was to it. But there are other instances, of course, of uh, aeroplanes hitting buildings. But nonetheless, we're told that, that nobody knew that this could ever happen when it came to 9-11. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, who, of course, was uh, big in the American uh, government at that stage. I won't read all this. Um, she now accepts that there were intelligence warnings that some kind of attack using aeroplanes uh, was in the offing. But she claimed that she was never briefed about it. So again, that sort of passes the buck. So there were many warnings. It is accepted there were many warnings that some kind of attack was coming. Uh, but what they say is intelligence errors meant it didn't get to the right people. But of course, lots of people think that might not be the whole story. But even if that's true, I mean, just in the wider collective, there was a lot of expectation that, if nothing else, the World Trade Center could be attacked. These are images from things before 9-11. Some of you will know this. The X-Files, 
You know, the young TV series had a, a brief spin-off series called The Lone Gunman. And in one of the episodes of The Lone Gunman, an aeroplane is hijacked using remote control and flown towards the World Trade Center. Now, that was less than a year before it then really happened. So, you know, it had been out there in the collective that this could happen. These are playing cards of strange nature. This is pre-9-11, showing the Pentagon blowing up and something happening to the Twin Towers that was very similar to what then happened. And again, this rap record cover shows the Twin Towers exploding. Now, I'm not trying to suggest, as some have, that there's anything that esoteric about that. But what I'm just saying is there was an idea that this could happen. And their notion that this would never happen, it could never happen, really is not true, because there were many warnings out there somewhere in the collective. And most people forget that the World Trade Center got bombed in 1993. This is something which has been wiped from the collective memory, it would seem. So uh, there was an explosion down in the basement, it was a truck bomb, and people died in this. So there were six people died, over a thousand people were injured in this attack. Now, it seems to have been an attempt to topple one tower into the next and bring both down. So that's 1993. So they knew that there could be attacks that would try to destroy the World Trade Center. Now, there is a twist to this story, because there was an FBI agent called Imad Salem who was working with the FBI, but he had infiltrated this Islamic terror group that were doing this. So they actually knew that this was going to happen. So he had been told that he would be given dummy explosives so that when this group planted these explosives, uh, they wouldn't go off, of course, and then they would be caught in the act. But guess what? According to him, he says they were given real explosives. Now make sense of that. So they knew it was coming, they knew what they were intending to do, and they actually allowed them to use real explosives, and the bomb went off. Now it didn't topple the tower, maybe it wasn't as successful as they were imagining, but what you're understanding here is, again, we have context. There were clearly attempts before now to get rid of the World Trade Center, and there, there have been other threats as well. But in the immediate run-up to 9-11, there was clearly a sense that something was about to occur. This is a crude but nonetheless effective chart showing you inside the training peaking just in the few days before 9-11. Uh, the companies that were affected by 9-11, and especially the airline companies, uh, suddenly had a lot of what, what are called put options put on them. So that's basically when traders are betting that your stock will go down. Well, why would they think that that was about to happen? And uh, this is not a strange flip. I mean, I'll read, I don't like text, but I'm going to read this. So many stock put options were placed on American Airlines and United Airlines the week before 9-11. They were the two uh, airlines that got affected. There was a 1,200% increase in trading activities that speculated that, you know, that they would go short. Uh, and as you can see there, 2.5 uh, million profits were made in dollars as the stock fell and so on. So that's lucky, isn't it? Somebody just happened to see that coming. And it can't be luck. It is very clear that warnings were known amongst the people in the know. Let's put it like that. And, I mean, we also have the strangeness that the owner then of the World Trade Center, Larry Silverstein, for the first time ever took out a destruction insurance policy on the towers by terrorism. And nobody had ever thought to do this before. But a few weeks before 9-11, he thinks, you know what, that would be quite useful. And, of course, he cleaned up with that. 
Coincidence? Maybe, but worth noting. Also worth noting that, uh, you know, people like uh, the mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown, was told not to fly on the day of 9-11. So he was given clear warnings, we, we don't advise that you fly that day. Well, why would they say that? So clearly, people knew somewhere along the line that something was about to happen. And I mean, again, I mean, it's not been accepted. There were intelligence warnings, but again, they say, but they didn't reach the kinds of people that, you know, should have reached them. However, it managed to reach people like the mayor of uh, San Francisco, rather than necessarily everybody in New York. So what is very interesting is that there's yet more anticipation of 9-11 from very strange quarters. So FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, suddenly established a base in New York there on the 10th of September. Now, initially, when people pointed this out, that was denied, uh, except in the end, it became clear you couldn't deny it. Mayor Rudy Giuliani, as he was then, later admitted that FEMA indeed were there uh, to be ready for what was going to be a biochemical attack drill, right, on the 12th of September. Now, drills are something which really come into this uh, because there seemed to be a lot of drills and exercises going on around that time. But it was this to be used as cover for then what really happened, or was this somebody else coming in and using these drills as a way, in amongst the confusion, to do what they wanted to do? So have a quick look at the official story, just in terms of the timelines. This is the, the timeline, which seems fairly you know, true as far as we know, but then it tells us where we can go. So 8.15am, flight 11 was hijacked. 8.42, flight 175 was hijacked. 8.46, flight 77 was hijacked. Uh, at 8.46, at the same time, uh, World Trade Center 1 was hit by flight 11. Uh, 9.03 a.m., World Trade Center 2 was hit by Flight 175. And then it goes on. 9.16, Flight 93 was hijacked. Uh, 9.38, the Pentagon was then hit by Flight 77. Uh, 9.59 a.m., World Trade Center 2 collapses. 10.03, uh, Flight 93 crashes. Well, we'll come to that. Uh, 10.28, World Trade Center 1 collapses. And then at 5.20 in the afternoon, World Trade Center number 7 collapses. And we'll come to that as well. So these are the basics. But of course, it's the fine detail where this starts to get rather more interesting. Here are the planes that were hijacked. I won't go through all the details here. They're all easily available in the public domain. These are the actual planes that were hijacked. So this is the flight pass that they took. There are arguments about this. These are the official flight paths where they then went off and, you know, apparently when they were hijacked, they started to do strange things. This is disputed, uh, and one of the strange things is the absence of clear information about what the planes did, but we'll come to that in a minute. There is also uh, a lot of confusion about who the hijackers were. Now, the people that we are told are the hijackers that we see on the very uh, few amounts of CC that they release, um, their appearance has been contradicted by some of the people who said, no, that wasn't them. Um, they're a strange time code anomalies. We've got different times on the same bits of film. The people we are told were hijackers, some say, no, they weren't. It was somebody else over there. There's a lot of confusion about who the Al-Qaeda hijackers were. Briefly, 
I mean, interestingly, no definitive passenger list for any of the flights has ever been agreed. So they've released different uh, lists, but they all seem to contradict each other. So that's strange. You'd think it wouldn't be that hard to get a definitive passenger list. The names, which were the alleged false IDs that the terrorists gave, uh, we've never been told which names on the flight list they were, which is strange. We don't know who was real and who wasn't real. This might have a bearing on something we'll mention soon. The passenger list for all four planes were mysteriously low on 9-11. Flight 93, which crashed, stroke, blew up in the woods, uh, was only at 19% capacity. So it only had 45 people on board, a plane that seated 239. Uh, That apparently was unusual. And you can see there, I mean, apparently, we are told, when they went to find them, uh, waiting at San Francisco airport to say to the relatives, unfortunately, this plane has crashed. They couldn't find a single relative waiting for anybody. Almost as if nobody thought anybody was coming from there anyway. So there are many strange things, and I do not say I have the answers to this. But I point them out to you because you then start to see there's a broader picture of strangeness around 9-11. So here are the hijackers, we are told. Now... There are claims that some of them are still alive, not long after 9-11. Even the BBC reported that at least two people had said, no, I'm still alive, that wasn't me. Um, They've since kind of just stopped talking about that or rescinded that and said, oh, no, it's a mistake, or those people are lying. But again, there's great confusion about who these people were. So they apparently carried out the attacks using uh, what they call in America box cutters knives, or we would say standy-type knives over here. But this is something that's been repeated many times as if it's an absolute fact. But actually, the, the, the phone calls from relatives which have given us this information are actually very scant. The main claim about the box cutter knives came from a call from the TV presenter, Barbara Olson, who was on board Flight 77. Now, quite a lot rides on Barbara Olson's testimony. And yet, there's a lot of strangeness about this. So, from the plane, she managed to call, we were told, her husband, Ted Olson, who was connected to the US government at that time. Um, The interesting thing is that he had a conversation with somebody he certainly believed to be his wife, unless he is lying. But then, when people checked the phone records from the phone companies, neither call that she tried to make actually connected. So, how were those calls made? There's been a lot of uh, arguing about these calls. Were they somehow voice synthesizers? Were they mimics? Were they actors? If they were real, there's still many strange things about it. So, I mean, today, you kind of take it for granted that in some circumstances you can use your phone on a plane, but back in 2001, that was a very unusual thing to be able to do. And even now, it's actually very difficult to get a signal so only a few of the 9-11 phone recordings have ever been publicly released. Uh, there are some out there, but some of them are very strange indeed. Uh, A.K. Judney was a Canadian researcher, and he did a lot of tests to see, actually, could a phone actually work above 8,000 feet? Uh, and we're told that some of these planes were certainly above that. He could not get planes, uh, sorry, phones on planes to work at anything above uh, 8,000 feet. And yet we're told that, say, with Flight 93, which was flying just below 40,000 feet, if we accept the official information, um, apparently lots of calls were made from that. 
And Flight 93 is an interesting one because, of course, that's been built into very much a Hollywood story. And there was only more in recent years that mobiles become more usable on a plane. But even now, some would say that, you know, you're basically not going to get that far with So when it was realised that these calls from Flight 93 probably could not have been made on mobile phones, uh, or cell phones, as they were saying in America, the story changed. Because, yeah, it became clearer, even though they said they were nearly all mobile phone calls, that that couldn't be. So then they said, ah, right, they were seatback phones they were using. So some aeroplanes back then had these phones. The problem with that is it's never been verified, and that's interesting in its own right, as to whether Flight 93 had those phones. You'd think if they absolutely knew, they, they would have said that. They've never managed to verify that, which is a strange thing. And even if the seatback phones were installed, a lot of people still think the amount of calls that were made probably wouldn't be possible. So there's something very odd about this, and we don't really have the time to do this justice, but although it sounds like James Bond stuff, it's not impossible that some of the calls could have been faked, and it's worth finding out more about it. And I mean, this is one classic one. So the gentleman on the right there is Mark Bingham. Now, this is in the public domain, and uh, he phoned his mother uh, from the hijack plane, apparently, and said, Hi, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. <laughs> now, they, they've tried to sort of retrospectively change this, because it's strange, isn't it, to give you your surname to your own mother. But there was a programmer not so long ago where they said, Oh, everybody knew him as Mark Bingham. He always used his surname. Well, maybe, but it still seems strange in a crisis that he would say that. So anyway, the, we cannot resolve this. Maybe it was innocent and real, but if you hear the calls we've had, some of them are really odd. So it, it's a strangeness. Okay, let's talk about black boxes, or, or red boxes, really, as they seem to be. So the flight data recorders, of course, would be crucial to find out exactly what was going on when these planes went down. But officially, the data recorders from flights 11, 175 and 93 were never found. That is fairly unusual. I mean, they do sometimes get destroyed, but you would imagine three of them being destroyed is unusual. Then, and this is where another twist comes in, some of the ground zero workers denied that. Okay, we'll show you look at parcels in a minute. The ground zero workers claimed that they did retrieve them. But then after they'd given them in, they mysteriously vanished into the ether. So make of that what you will. Meanwhile, yes, the passports, the hijackers' passports survived. So black boxes didn't in some cases, but the passports didn't. Fluttered down from the balls of flame onto the pavements below, where that's how we knew who was on the planes. Does that sound even slightly credible? Not really. But, but this is the fairy tale version that we're asked to believe. And, I mean, needless to say, if you saw some of the anniversary programmes uh, over the last few weeks, so what was important was what they didn't tell you and what they didn't bother to highlight as a strangeness. And, uh, again, what they're selling you is the mythological version, and they miss out all the key stuff that really matters. But we're covering it today. Mind you, at the same time, now, interestingly, both recorders, right, data and voice, were found at the Pentagon for Flight 77. Now, that's curious because Flight 77 is the, is the flight that has the most weirdness around it. 
Because the plane that hit the Pentagon is in a lot of contention, but we'll come to that. But it isn't interesting, and yet they are the ones they found them. And again, Flight 93, no phase recorder, but they did find a voice recorder, which had, again, the pilots, and that it reinforces the, the myth of the passenger storming the cockpit. But some people believe that something else occurred. We'll come to that. The other strange thing is about transponders. So aeroplanes basically give out digital IDs. Uh, and this would be one that, uh, there it is, working now. Uh, this, would be, this would be one that we would have had back in the planes in 2001. So basically, if somebody in air traffic control is seeing your blip, if these are on, you get uh, an ID and you know who they are. Now, told in the hijackings, they all got turned off very quickly. Now, some have queried that and said, that's a strange thing, would that be their priority? But okay, let's accept for a minute that that did happen and uh, they were all turned off. The, the contention from the authorities that that's why they weren't able to find the aeroplanes in time to stop them before they then impacted where they did really doesn't make sense. Because just because the ID goes doesn't mean the blip vanishes from the radar. So NORAD, which is the North American Aerospace Defense Command, it, it of course, you know, polices its airspace uh, very carefully, they had always boasted they could basically pick up a bird on their radar. So even if the digital ID number wasn't there, they should have been able to see where these planes were going. And all the others would have their ID, so it would be easy to spot which ones were the hijacked planes. But they say, well, we just couldn't tell. That's really not very credible. And David Ray Griffin, whose books I will mention later on, makes this point. And he wrote, the most important force is the claim that the US military cannot track airplanes that are not sending out a transponder signal. The military still has its traditional or primary radar, which does not depend upon anything being sent from the aircraft. If aircraft not sending out transponder signals were invisible to the military radars, then Soviet bombers coming to attack the US during the Cold War could have avoided detection by simply turning their transponders off. So clearly this is a nonsense. The fact that the transponders went off, let's assume that's true, doesn't mean that they shouldn't have been able to have found them. So it's another anomaly. But then, back to drills and exercises. In the anniversary productions we've just seen, I noticed, well, in the ones that I saw, unless anybody saw a different, nobody mentioned uh, the exercises that were going on on the day of 9-11. So Operation Vigilant Guardian was one of them. And that visualised, and if you've not heard this before, I know this sounds incredible, but it visualised planes hitting exactly the targets that then got hit that day. And nobody talks about that anymore. So was that somebody deliberately scheduling those for that day to muddy the waters when then something real happened? Or did somebody from the outside hear, and that still means there's a mole, that these exercises were going on and for a right great day of confusion. But either way, they used that, certainly initially, to explain why they couldn't stop the planes. And uh, there's a bit you'll see that's been released where the air traffic controller, when he's hearing about the hijack, says, is this real world or exercise? And that, of course, covered a multitude of sins. So the confusion sown by this was really fascinating. But, again, it seems to have been expunged from the official record now. Nobody speaks about this. I would just briefly add that on 7-7 in London, when we had our bombings, Again, terror drills, which postulated exactly what then happened that day, were happening. Make of that what you will. Okay, 
Um, also, the air traffic control transcripts from NORAD have been edited in more recent years. So the, the initial ones that they released, which actually were quite damning because it made it quite clear they did know where some of the planes were going much earlier than they said they did. Right? They realised that and they changed them. They reissued the transcripts, which then sort of subtly changes things. So it looks like they didn't know. And they can do that, and the public basically lets them get away with it. There's only a few people like yourselves that would actually come out with something like this that would think much about this. But it's crucial. You start editing things like that, it does begin to look like you're covering something up. And all the evidence suggests that if nothing else, if there wasn't somebody within command and control helping 9-11 to occur, they stood back, that there was some kind of stand-down not to interfere too much in what then started to happen. Okay. I mean, another strange thing is that insector fighters are, as a matter of routine, scrambled in America as soon as you think there's been a hijack. Uh, this did not happen on 9 11. Uh, and in the end, they did scramble some jets, but they didn't fly at full speed and apparently went in the wrong direction to begin with. So it wasn't terribly helpful. In one of the programs they saw recently, they did interview some of the pilots that did eventually scramble, but again, this was very much glossed over. So normal procedure, once again, was not followed that day. Why not? Why not? And then you get very odd things about Dick Cheney and the late Donald Rumsfeld and uh, General Richard Myers. Cheney especially, now he is often accused of being a key part of 9-11. May or may not be true, but he does seem to have been very inaccurate. Let's be kind about where he was on 9-11 and what he knew. Because their own staff roundly contradicted their versions of where they were. They basically, cutting a long story short, said they didn't get into their positions of command until it was a bit too late. They were late coming in, there was confusion, they didn't know what was going on. Their own staff in the official 9-11 commission hearing said, that's rubbish, they were there. And they obviously didn't know what the official script would be, so they've been contradicted. And this man, Richard Clark, who was the White House security chief, in his own book, Against All Enemies, also directly contradicts them. I don't think Clark was trying to do that. I think he just didn't know what the official script was meant to be. <laughs> it is very clear that they were more in a position of influence than they have claimed. And certainly, again, there's a lot of strangeness about that. I urge you to look up more. We can only rush through, of course, tonight. And then you get the testimony of Norman Minetta. Now, he was effectively their transport secretary. And this almost seems too incredible, but it's true. Now, he testified to the 9-11 Commission uh, about what he witnessed that day. And again, he claimed he was with Vic Cheney in the official bunker while the attacks were coming in. And he said something really interesting. And I'll read it to you if you haven't got your glasses. He said, during the time that the aeroplane was coming into the Pentagon, there was a young man who would come in and say to the vice president, Cheney, right, the plane is 50 miles out, then the plane is 30 miles out. And when he got down to the plane is 10 miles out, the young man also said to the vice president, do the orders still stand? And the vice president turned and whipped his neck around and said, of course the orders still stand. Have you heard anything to the contrary? And then bang, and a pentagon was here. Now, Minetta said, well, I don't really know what that meant. But a lot of other people think they know exactly what that means. It does strongly suggest he was present when they were effectively allowing 
a plane, whatever plane it was, to come in and hit the Pentagon. And here is the key thing. Guess what? They did not include that testimony in the final 9-11 Commission report. Well, I wonder why. Because it's actually very damning. So again, it's like there's some kind of standout, if nothing else, going on here. But of course, many people believe there was also something else. Well, as for this gentleman here, maybe the less said the better. I don't know if you did see the uh, programme and the interviewed him recently, but l- let's be very kind. He really isn't the brightest spark, is he? <laughs> In fact, even Trump seems extremely intelligent by comparison. I know some of you here love Trump, but here's the thing. So, in my personal view, and that's all this is, I don't think he actually was part of 9 11 in terms of, I don't think he knew what was going on. I think later he would have been made party to it. But I think when you see him in the school being told there's been an attack, I think he really doesn't know what's going on. Later that seems to change. That's just a personal view. Some do think that he was. My personal view is that he wasn't. Would you want to entrust him with secrets like that? But he has like, he was at the school, right? And he was meeting children and they were having a story read to them. On the day he said, well, he said, before I'd gone into the classroom, I'd seen the, the first crash into the tower on the television, and I thought, well, that's one lousy pilot. <laughs> now, aside from the terminology he used, I mean, his thing is that he couldn't have seen it on the television. He claimed he saw it on the television news. He couldn't, because the first crash wasn't televised until the evening. The footage was in the cameras of the, the Norday brothers. We'll see them in a minute, the French crew. They were the first people to catch it. And there were later bits of uh, clips that came, but they were not shown at the time. So he couldn't have seen it, unless he had some weird secret camera trained on the World Trade Center. It was even weirder. But either way, he's not been straight. And also, he's certainly not been straight about how he tried to protect the Bin Laden family. There's a lot of stuff about the Saudis being involved, right? No, No matter who else was. And certainly he made sure they all got away from America very safely, even when most of the planes were grounded. And that's even in the official record. But again, nobody likes to talk about that anymore. So, Air Force One, there were threats against him. And there have been claims that there were coded threats, which meant that somebody knew uh, what the inside codes were, and therefore this was coming from the inside. But I noticed on one of the programmes the other day, they, they backed off that, said, oh no, somebody just said they thought they used the coded names. And it was just a general threat that probably wasn't serious. But there is theory that says, actually, once they put Bush onto that, and he wasn't very happy about it, but you know, they were just flying him around from place to place. What if he then got a call from somebody in the know and said, Mr. President, here's what's going on. And uh, if you want to, you know, land again safely, you might want to go along with this. It's a theory. It's a conspiracy theory. But there's quite a lot of people think that's true. And then certainly his demeanour seems to change later that day. So, this is, again, there's more about this, but it's just another little cog in the weirdness. All right, let's start with Flight 93 to begin with. So that's the plane that some believe would have hit the White House. But that, again, is in contention. However, uh, the movie versions, there's at least two movie versions of this. They give you the Hollywood view, which is the one that we've been fed, which is the passengers stormed the cockpit and they got in and in the wrestling around, the plane crashed down into the woods in Pennsylvania. It's very clear that can't be the whole story. We've already talked about the phone calls, that they are 
dubious, right? Okay, but even if you accept that, you've got the other problem of the eyewitness testimony, which says number one, that Flight 93 landed safely at Cleveland, Ohio Airport. Now, this is again being denied, and what they now say is that ah, it was a mistake, it, it was a, an error. But this went out on a TV station that it had landed. Now, there is again a theory, that's all it could be. Remember, Flight 93 only had 45 people on it. It's quite a lot of empty seats. There is an argument that the aeroplanes that we see used on 9-11 were not the planes that were hijacked. We're not going to solve this tonight, but it's a theory. One theory is they all landed here, and they packed them all onto one aeroplane, Flight 93, took it over into the woods, and then blew it up. It's interesting, isn't it? And then what happened to the real planes? That's not so easy to answer. And this, we are in the realm of theory here, but I pass it on because there are certainly strange things about Flight 93, not least of which is when you see the pictures of the crash. It, number one, and again, nobody talks about this anymore, right? The debris field, as initially reported, was about eight miles across, and quite a few people reported uh, an aerial explosion. Now, in one of the recent programs, they were interviewing a fighter pilot who said they were being given orders to shoot it down, but they didn't need to because luckily, right, the, the passengers crashed the plane, so they didn't need to do this terrible thing. But the general view, actually, of anybody that studies this is that they almost certainly did shoot that plane down. Uh, but nobody talks about the wide debris field. But if you just look at the pictures, some say if you compare that to an ordnance explosion, and that's an ordnance explosion. It looks more like that, rather than what you'd expect from an air crash. Uh, we'll just show you a quick picture here. That's an air crash in 1979 in Chicago. A lot of gloomy black smoke that goes on for a long while. Uh, that wasn't the case with Flight 93. If you look at the crash site, Flight 93, it's weird. It's just like a black smudge. There's no engines. There's no great big parts lying around anywhere. We're told that it came down at such an angle that it buried itself in the ground. But that really doesn't make any sense. Uh, let me show you another air crash. Not very nice, but there we go. This is Ukraine, 2006. So what you'd expect, you know, big bits of engine, you know. It's very clear that an aeroplane's come down. But that's certainly not the case of Flight 93. And again, it makes sense that the main explosion took place in the air and what hit the ground was already very likely partially disintegrated. And that's the that's diagram of what we're told happened. That it came straight in and went basically under the ground. It doesn't, really doesn't make sense. And um, people who know about things like this and flying planes say it's actually even very hard to get a plane down at that angle. Uh, because actually they're designed not to go down like that. Uh, so again, it's a very, very strange business. And there's old books about Fly 93, but we need to move on because I want to get to that very soon. The Pentagon, well, you know, this again is so strange. If we just show you a brief diagram of what happened there, that's where the aeroplane struck. It struck the one part of the Pentagon that was under renovation that day. It didn't actually have that many people in there. Was it the maximum devastation was required at the World Trade Center, but <coughs> restrained casualties at the Pentagon? Well, maybe so. Um, but as the angle it came in on, we are told, it went across here, skimmed a couple of light poles, we'll see them in a minute, and struck there. However, there's problems with this. 
If you look at aerial shots of the Pentagon before 9-11, in the weeks before 9-11, weirdly, there's a kind of scuff mark already there, which follows exactly the route that the plane took into the building. Now, there was building work going on there. Is it just where bulldozers have been going up and down? But it's almost like there's an arrow saying, hit here. Maybe coincidence. But then you look at what we're told happened, and it's very hard to believe that this aeroplane did this. It came in at literally lawn skimming height, and it's been pointed out, it would have had to have dipped down suddenly to do that. It didn't just come straight down. Very, very hard to do in a plane like this, I am told by people in the know. And uh, I've had some very helpful people that have helped me with this talk, and I can't name them, but thank you, because you know when you talk to people who know about these things, you realize there's something here we need to talk more about. So the odds of that being done without breaking the plane up is slim. There's one of the light poles. It's just worth a brief mention that some of the witnesses on the freeway said, it's really weird, it's like the light poles have been unscrewed and just laying on the ground. Have they been loosened? But maybe something hit them. Again, anonymous. That's the flight path it apparently took to come in. Now why not just come straight in and hit this massive bullseye? Right? But instead, no, it does this strange turn to go out of its way to hit this renovated block of the Pentagon. And again, the idea of doing that, and we're told around 500 miles per hour, and it not breaking up or just missing the building, apparently it's not that easy to hit a target like that at that speed. It, there's many questions. And at the helm is Henny Hanjur. An Al-Qaeda terrorist who even the flight school that inadvertently trained him said, he could not handle basic air manoeuvres. He was one of the worst pilots that ever, you know, trained. So to believe that he managed to do this on 9-11 is really, really stretching things. If you look at the uh, crash site outside, these are not plane wheels, by the way. They're cable spools that were already there. There's minimal debris there. There's very little evidence that a large plane has crashed. You see some shots of debris. Some people say that it's almost like somebody came out and laid it on the lawn. But minimal debris and it's worth watching the original YouTube footage where you get the initial reports I was saying it's weird there was no luggage there were no bodies it was a really strange crash but that's all now removed from public view so we've got a wingspan of 124.7 feet and a tail of 45 foot high but it managed to get in the main entry point was effectively 20 feet cross and a lot of people have wondered how you get the plane in like that. So we're told that the wings vaporised. That's the official explanation. Let's have a look at that. There we go. Now, apparently, so the wings would apparently smash to smithereens, but nonetheless, you'd expect a bit more damage. And it's not often planes vaporise, is it? Uh, and then, it's a very strange clean strike. The roof collapsed actually a little bit afterwards, the initial shots, that didn't happen. And if you look, there's a picture of a stall there with a book on it, it's not even singed. And there is a brief flash of flame, I'll show you that in a minute, but it's almost like what hit was quite surgical, whereas you see in the World Trade Center, they're very, very large explosions. That doesn't seem to be what we get here. And this flame managed to go through several what they call rings, these are, these are the blocks of the Pentagon. It went through a lot and managed to punch its way out. Now, a lot of people think that the plane we're told did that really just shouldn't have got that far through. This does look like something with great penetrative abilities. And that's why some people say that's because it wasn't this kind of plane. It was maybe something like a cruise missile. 
Some said an aeroplane came really low over the Pentagon and then something came down under it. Because a lot of people did say they saw a plane low over the Pentagon. But some have wondered that that wasn't the plane they hit. And just in you know, the heat of the moment, they thought it was. That had gone. A small plane or missile, maybe, came down underneath it. These are some of the only pictures we've had released. I mean, bearing in mind the Pentagon is the most surveyed building in the whole of America for security purposes. You'd think by now they would have released the definitive images of the crash, but no. We've got this really blurry image. You can hardly even see anything there. And then you see the crash and the other ones they've released that are no more helpful. So people have been analysing these over the years. Some think it wasn't a missile, but it might be what's called an A3 Sky Warrior plane. The late Jack White did a study on this and points out that the profile is more like that, certainly, than it was um, the plane we're told. So could it be that a small plane was used? And certainly quite a few witnesses said it was something small, not something large. So again, great confusion here. So, it's the World Trade Center. So, we've all seen the footage, you know what happened. Uh, here's the official explanation of where they hit, uh, which is not in contention. There is, of course, the hologram theory. I, I don't personally go down that route. I mean, if you believe no planes hit and it was holograms, that's your view, and I respect that. But to me, it would be much easier just to crash a plane into a building than come up with some amazing hologram. So, I'm going to leave that aside for today. That's my personal view. Others disagree. What is of note is that these are the two impacts. They went in at almost exactly the same angle. And again, that doesn't look like a pilot that's not very good that couldn't fly very well, going, ooh, that looks like somebody that knows what they're doing. And it's been pointed out to me, it went at the angle you need to create the maximum damage to the structure. So that in itself makes some people think, were they remote control? There's quite a lot of speculation that they were not even being piloted, that they were under remote control. The first footage we mentioned, the French all day brothers filmed it. You've all seen it. They're in the street. You hear the plane. They look round and bang. So that's the main footage. There's a few other bits that we've now got from security cameras, but none of them are that clear. But what is quite curious about all of the uh, footage is that just before the plane crashes, and it's true in the second plane as well, there's a bright flash as it enters. Now some say that's not strange. It's just static that you would have a lot of with a plane going at that speed, again, roughly 500 miles per hour. But others say it's kind of weird because it seems to happen just before it hits the, the, the building. And some of them was it firing something into the building and all of this. That is easy to dismiss, but it is just worth a look at this shot. Now, assuming that this is not a fake image, and I don't believe that it is, there's a static flash. The aeroplane hasn't properly entered the building yet. And something's going on here. Is it a shockwave? Was there something already planted to go off as it entered the building? We don't know. But there are very strange things about what happens when they strike. And then, when you look at the footage, that's the second plane going. And I know, by the way, we're having to speak very coolly and forensically about what are really awful events, but we need to be forensic this evening. A number of people said, that doesn't look like a normal aeroplane. There's a lot of arguing about, are there strange pods underneath? And some say it's a trick of the light, and others say this looks like a military adapted plane. So what would that be? With extra explosive? With something that fired something? It is tricky, but I mean, if you look at that plane that hit uh, the Tower 2, as it says there, you've got that line there. Again, some say it's a trick of the light, but then, I don't know. So there's arguments. 
were the planes that hit the towers the ones we're told? If they weren't, what happened to the real planes? That's for another time. There's plenty of speculation out there, but I'm pointing it out just to get the big picture here. And a key point that's often missed is that when the impact that actually occurs, most of the jet fuel burns out immediately. So the orange fallen flame you're seeing is the largely kerosene-based fuel exploding. Now that matters because, of course, they've all said, well, the reason the towers collapsed is that jet fuel was streaming down lift shafts and all of this. Now, actually, if you look at the technical spec of that, that can't explain much. And the lift shafts were staggered, by the way. They didn't go from the top to the bottom. So there's many things that don't make sense. But the point here is that actually it burnt itself out very quickly. And although clearly it was horrific, and some people jumped to their deaths rather than face the, the heat, nonetheless, you get shots like this, and this poor woman here is standing forlornly looking out, and it doesn't seem to be in immediate danger of burning. The black smoke that we see at the World Trade Center strongly suggests actually a low temperature fire. And that then creates problems if we say that it collapsed due to fire. And we'll come to that. And the collapses themselves, and you'll hear much more about this with mass. I'm just going to go through very, very quickly. So many anomalies, almost don't know where to begin. They're at nearly free fall speed. One of them, Building 7, is at free fall speed. Nothing can fall faster. And the thought that these collapse just like that without any extra help really is so hard to believe. The official version says it pancakes, it's designed floor, and they always show you these floors just sliding up and down these supports as if nothing's connecting them. That isn't true. And if you look at the original blueprints, actually there are all kinds of supports. And Professor Thomas Eager, who was part of the official 9-11 commission, and, and believes the official story. Even he pointed out the number of columns lost from the initial impact was not large, and the lows were shifted to remaining columns. And yet we're told, no, the whole thing just pancaked down because it was built so badly. Well, maybe. So here becomes the classic thing, right? So jet fuel will burn at around 1800 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Steel begins to weaken, uh, weaken uh, at around 2800 degrees Fahrenheit. <coughs> So, of course, then you get this whole thing of, well, you know, what then was, was burning so hot? We don't see evidence, even in the official uh, version, of those kinds of temperatures. The National Institute of Standards and Technology claims that vital fireproofing was removed from the steel supports, and hence the heat then managed to get to the supports and melt the steel. Right, what was their main science behind that? <coughs> A man firing shotgun rounds at steel plates in the plywood box. That's their science. It's not very impressive. Uh, the general view from people like architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth say it's really impossible to believe that these collapsed in the way they were told without extra help. And then he gets the theories. So we'll come to Judy Wood in a minute, right? But many people believe nanothermite was used, which is something you can use in demolitions to make things burn hotter, to weaken structures. <laughs> Professor Steve Jones and Neil Tarrick, who until this were mainstream figures, have said nanothermite was absolutely used. There are particles which do look like that. The debunkers say they're paint that has in itself been since debunked, but you don't hear about that in the mainstream, do you? But then there's another arm of thought which says, yeah, but maybe it was something weirder. Judy Wood has quite a few followers. She believes some kind of free energy technology was used, even mini-nukes. Now, the way I see this is this, right? People get into vicious arguments about that. It isn't necessary. What you can show is this is not a natural collapse. 
And that much we can all agree on. It's worth finding out about both sides of the argument. Maybe both and all of these technologies were used to make sure the buildings came down. We're going to hear more from Matt about this very shortly. You see footage of what some people say is molten metal. Some say it's molten glass. But again, we've just said it would be very hard to melt steel to the degree that you've got literally rivers of it coming down. And when you see footage of uh, when they're removing the, uh, all the rubble, literally, even days later, you're seeing this glowing stuff. It's very hard to believe a natural collapse did that, even with the jet fuel damage. It shouldn't still be glowing that uh, long after. Thermal imaging, even weeks later, shows incredible heat at the World Trade Center. That does not look like a natural collapse. And uh, this is something we do not have the time to go into today. Look it up, because it's very clear something is not right. And then when you see the footage of the explosions, it's not just falling down in one place, it's blasting outwards. Human remains were found several blocks away, even years later. That seems like a very forceful explosion, and you're going to hear more about that later. Literally, these buildings were pulverised to dust. They didn't just collapse. The fireman, a rescue worker, said it was weird there weren't any filing cabinets, telephones, carpets, nothing. Many of those floors, when they collapsed, were not burning. Remember that. It does look like something was blasting them to dust, which then, sadly, lots of people had to breathe in. And the toxic dust is a whole other element of 9-11. <coughs> then you get the footage, which some say is showing clear demolition devices being used. Um, some have argued against this, but when you look at an actual demolition of a, a block of flats, it does look to be very similar, because of course the general view is there were some kind of devices in there to make sure these towers came down. In some of the footage you see a little crackle go down the side of the building and then little puffs of smoke. And I'm just going to show you a very brief clip from the 9-11 Mysteries uh, documentary. Watch this, I'll take the sound off, look what it's highlighting. It's very clear there are explosions going off at levels below the clouds. That's happening at free fall speed, and nothing else can be going down further than that. These are independent explosions. Look how far down the towers they are. Firemen, rescue workers, people on the day said there were explosions in those towers going off even before they collapsed. And this footage is very, very damning. And look at this, right? And how far down that is. That's utterly independent from what's going on up at the top there. So architects and engineers and people like that have very strong cases that these buildings were indeed demolished. And then you get a strange thing, when one of the buildings starts to topple, it looks like it's going to come down into the street, then it corrects itself. And that suggests the infrastructure beneath it is being taken out. It's literally then just going down into nothing. It's not pancaking because you get a build-up then of of debris. And again, the North Tower, the antenna starts to drop before the main building, which suggests that the floors beneath it have already been taken out and is sinking inwards. There's more to know. I'm not going to read all these, but there is an awful lot of testimony from official dirt and firemen saying that they're explosions. People coming out. All of this is now removed from the public record. Nobody mentioned that in all the recent anniversary programmes. William Rodriguez, the caretaker of the North Tower, uh, who was a national hero, by the way, helped people to get out. They are seen being decorated by Bush. He and his staff heard an explosion in the basement a few seconds before the first plane hit. Remember this. He said, we hear an impact, like a rumble, like moving furniture in a massive way. And all of a sudden, we hear another rumble, and a guy comes running, running into our office, and all of the skin was off his body. 
And he came in shouting, fire, fire, fire. And then the first plane hit up there and everyone forgot about the basement. It's clear there were basement explosions. Now, that's another good way of making sure a building comes down. You take out the roots. And again, there is testimony from the fireman saying there's just simply nothing left. Even a 50-ton hydraulic press had been completely disintegrated. And that was down on the lower floors, not up where all the big carnage was occurring. So it's pretty clear there was an above and below thing. And here's something else I'll never show you. On the day of 9-11, they broadcast massive plumes of smoke coming up from the basement before the collapses. Do you hear about that anymore? No. It's clear there were explosions going off very, very low down. And again, it looks like somebody was making sure those buildings were coming down. Some have suggested they use cutter charges, which they use in demolitions, to uh, basically make sure the buildings came down. And you might say, what's the evidence? Well, it's circumstantial, but look at that. That's the World Trade Center. And look at that. It does look strongly like they might have been used. I'm no expert, but I think you can put two and two together. It's highly possible. Let's put it like that. How did anybody get in there to do this? You're going to hear more about this. Whether it was Al-Qaeda or somebody from within the American command and control, who knows. But Marvin Bush, the president's brother, was in charge of security at that time. Maybe a coincidence, but I pass it on to you. And Scott Ford, Scott's not here, is he tonight? Scott came and spoke for us a few years ago. He is one of the people that says there was a power down in the World Trade Center a few days before 9-11 for a cabling upgrade. People came in, security cameras were turned off, they were doing maintenance in the lift shafts. And the lift shafts would be very good places to place things to bring the buildings down. Again, maybe circumstantial, but if you saw his talk, you might remember that it was extremely convincing. So, buildings, they burn, and often they burn for days, they don't collapse. A hotel in Madrid, 2005, Grenfell, right, cheaply made, hence the horror, burned for 60 hours, big collapse. 9-11, they're going down in less than an hour. And then, of course, we have to briefly mention this good old thing here. World Trade Center number seven, which was 47 stories and steel frame and housed the Secret Service and so on, does this at 5.20 in the afternoon, when it was never hit by an aeroplane. And the science behind this that tells us why this collapsed is so flawed that quite a few people have accused the authorities of outright scientific fraud. In brief, because we've got to finish in a second, there, right here, sir, the Twin Towers, there's Building 7. There were two blocks between them, even. And we're told that debris from the Twin Towers set light to Building 7, and the fire weakened the structure so much that it collapsed. But the fire that we see is really not very much. And even if we accept their claims that there was much more fire in the building than we could see, it really should not have collapsed. And when they did their computer models to show how this could have worked, the fires they factored in were not the fires that were there, but the fires that would need to be there to bring the buildings down. Do you see the difference? So they basically invented fires, and they said, well, there you go, that's how it happened. But they're not necessarily the fires that were there. And one of the main arguments, right, is uh, the shear studs, these metal studs that hold buildings together, right, because of the heat, they expanded, they broke away from the concrete. They call this global collapse, that's how they say it came down. Problem is, actually concrete expands at much the same time. Uh, and at the same rate, and in their computer models, they didn't factor that in. And so they just came up again with the result that they wanted. 
There's no sensible explanation for why Lonnie 7 came down. Again, as it begins to go down, little puffs of smoke on the side could be demolition. Barry Jennings was in uh, building number seven at the beginning of the day, only just after the attacks had begun. And he said he heard an enormous explosion in the basement, right, even in those early times. So it's like, again, they were already destroying the inside of building number seven, ready for it to come down later on. And another colleague backed him up. Although later, interestingly, under pressure, the colleague then rescinded that. But you can see Barry Jennings is no longer with us, sadly. Original testimony. And why would he lie? He was just saying in the streets what had just happened to him. So it looks like they tried to get rid of Building 7. Larry Silverstein, later on, uh, who owned the whole complex, gave a very interesting TV interview where he said, we've had such terrible loss of life, maybe the smartest thing to do is pull it, i.e. implying that they were going to demolish Building Number 7, and that's what they did. But then when people said, oh, yeah, but if, if you demolished building number seven, didn't you demolish the Twin Towers as well? Then he, he went back on that and said, well, when I said pull it, what I meant was pull the firemen out of the building. Does that sound credible? Because it doesn't to a lot of people. And don't forget, the BBC uh, reported the collapse of World Trade Center 7 20 minutes before it went down. So there was a clear expectation that this would come down, and obviously the press release went out too early. Uh, some people have attacked the report of Jane Sandley for lying, but that's ridiculous. She was just saying what she was told to say, so leave her alone. But clearly, a press release went out right too soon. So why would that building collapse? There was no reason why it should collapse. Popular mechanics came up with all kinds of reasons, and many people say are just blatant fraud for the reasons we've given. David Ray Griffin has written some of the best books about 9-11. You really should read them. They're not sensationalist. And his book, Debunking 9-11, Debunking, basically demolishes, if you pardon the pun, everything popular mechanics says. And his book about World Trade, World Trade Center 70 is essential reading. You need to find out more. We're rushing through. Why bring it down? The general view is that 9-11 was at least partially coordinated from this building, and they had to bring the evidence down at the end of the day. It's a theory, but you can understand why they're thinking. So, to finish, in the aftermath, by the way, they cleared up the debris very, very quickly. So quickly, they never did a proper investigation. There was no full forensic investigation. They blamed Bin Laden, that was it, and off we went. Um, the 9-11 Commission reports, yeah, you may well laugh. It's a work of fiction, basically, which misses out the key stuff. And indeed, it then became a comic book. Well, that's, that's, it has become a comic book fantasy. So they actually turned this into a graphic novel. <laughs> and don't forget that many of the people that were in government at that point had, just a year or two before, been part of this, the project for the new American century, which said that America will not be strong on the world stage again until something like a new Pearl Harbor. And then on 9-11, what did everybody call it? The New Pearl Harbor. Because, of course, it gave them all the remits they wanted. If you want to call them the New World Order, or you just want to call them some small criminal cabal, whichever way you look at it, there was a lot to gain. It gave them footholds around the world, all the wars that followed. The war in Afghanistan, by the way, was clearly already in the planning. They were just waiting for a reason. They have in custody Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, that's apparently the mastermind of this, and he may well have been involved, because you need taxes, right? You don't just do something like this without somebody you can credibly blame, but is it the whole story? He's been waterboarded many times now. 
Are you ever going to get the truth from a man that they've done that to? Probably not. And as yet, still no trial, which tells you a lot. History does have good precedents. The burning of the Red State Parliament. Many believe it's a false flag event. Even the gunpowder plot. Many blame that on the Protestant government of the day and believe they did it deliberately to discredit the Catholics and so that the plotters were passes. Uh, Pearl Harbor, many naval historians now accept that they basically allowed it to happen to bring America into a war. Some people didn't want to be part of the Gulf of Tonkin incident that began the Vietnam War. never actually happened. It was a minor gunboat skirmish, but they needed a reason. And the sinking of the Lusitania, a lot of dubiousness about that. People do terrible things if they want their mandate to work, and it gives them security, it gives them control, and then we all give in because we're all afraid. And that's why we're now in the world of security and control that we've gone into. And of course, since the pandemic, it's ranked up a whole other level. And you know, there, I have openly talked over the years of microchipping all of us, and they will all be safe. Well, I noticed that's gone quiet a bit since people started accusing Bill Gates of things, but nonetheless, they were very openly speaking about this, and things like 9-11, of course, give us, you know, an excuse to go along with it. So we do need to reinvestigate 9-11. I'm going to stop now. Uh, there's many credible people out there, from pilots, even the late Robin Williams said this was an inside job. There are people in the mainstream that have questioned this. You just don't hear about them very much. And, of course, we have a minister tonight. Uh, Matt Campbell, and we're going to go to Matt in any second because he is going to give us his version of events. Many books, very good one, the new Pearl Harbor, get the revisited version, 9-11 on Mars is one of the most recent books, you will read these and realise you have been lied to if you didn't already know this. If you want the shorthand, my books cover them in great, shall we say, complexity and yet not enough, you need more, but if you want a concise guide, you've got that. My own book, The New Heretics, also investigates this. That'll be out in December. But basically, I hope what I've managed to convey to you this evening is that there's something wrong with 9-11. And we're now going to hear a very personal account. So, you know, we have just given a very general view here. Uh, Matt Campbell, you might have seen him on the news recently. He's been in the papers, been on the television. He has a very personal tale to tell, but also... A lot more evidence that says that absolutely clearly uh, the official story of 9-11 cannot be correct. And I hope that at the very least I've managed to convey that to you tonight, whatever the truth. So I'm going to stop this, my website, truthagenda.org. We're going to go over to Matt now. So we're going to have literally two minutes while we just swap over the computer. Go to Lou if you want now. But thanks for listening. With you very shortly. disrespectful to the victims' families. Well, I think it's more disrespectful not to get to the bottom of what's going on. And we're going to hear a very personal view of this tonight. So, very brave man. Give a massive welcome to Matt Campbell. Jeff um, died on 9-11. He was on the 106th floor of the North Tower. 
So um, <clears throat> he sort of says there's about 100 people there, and you know, like a lot of the people um, in both towns, they were told to stay put. Um, for people above the impact zone in the North Tower, it made no difference. Uh, they couldn't get out, all the four um, stairwells were blocked. But for people in the South Tower, there was one stairwell, um, but you know, most people unfortunately listened to the advice and stayed put. And then about 17 actually managed to escape from the impact zone of the North of the South Tower. Um, but it's just, it's establishing, I mean, for me, it's quite emotional listening to that because I know that's someone who's in the same conference and my brother was, and, you know, obviously making that emergency call. Um, this one is a, sorry, this is a, um, it's a partly redacted um, phone call to the emergency services, but this is later, it's around 9.28, so, you know, for me, I know that everyone pretty much was still alive on the 106th floor. Um, it's, it's kind of frustrating listening to it, because unfortunately they've redacted the people who were killed, I guess to protect privacy, etc. But it's, it's frustrating. You get a little bit of bleed through from people's voices, but I, believe me, I've spent so long listening to videos, audios, etc., just trying to get a glimpse or you know, something of my brother. Um, but I'll play a little bit of it. Very, very 
very smoky. I understand that the 107 floor was pretty much everyone came down to the 106 because the smoke was, was bad. Um, and where people ended up being, I think, is important, whether they were near the windows or near the core, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, okay, so these are the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner's um, World Trade Center statistics as of 1st of September 2021. Um, a total of 2,753 people were reported missing. There are 21,905 fragments of people um, that have been collected or recovered. Some on site and some of the poorly uh, named fresh killed uh, landfill site. Um, I guess one of the interesting things about the, the remains there is according to Amy Mundorf, who is the um, forensic anthropologist, or was the senior uh, forensic anthropologist at uh, the HCMA, has said that 5,000 of those 22,000 remains are smaller than an inch. We're looking at a massive amount of fragmentation of, of people, of uh, the 2,700, uh, 2,753 that died from the train. Um, the majority of people have been identified through DNA, um, but you can see that that so the victims not identified, you know, 1106 people, 40%. There's nothing been identified for those families. They have nothing to, you know, to confirm that their loved ones have been found. Which I just think is an astonishing um, statistic. Um, new identifications are very rare these days. I think over the last five years there's been about one a year. Um, it really has slowed down. There were two actually in the last month, um, but it's, it's a rare occurrence now. I'd say up to about five years ago, the most um, typical thing was that you'd get repeat remains identified of people, but actually someone brand new being identified is, is very rare. So you're still talking, you know, 1,100 people is nothing, nothing. So, my brother. Um, it's a good looking chap, definitely the best looking out of us three brothers. Um, he, we, well, we were told that we were unlikely to receive any remains of my brother. Um, very early on, I think probably November time, 2001, certainly December, we were told that, you know, to expect that nothing would be found because he, along with other people, had been vaporised. Didn't really think about what that meant, but it's a really odd term. Anyway. Um, Around um, 2002, in June, um, we got a call from the police, and it was very close to my mum's birthday, and um, my brother's collarbone had been identified. Um, that had significance to my mum because Jeff had broken his collarbone as a, like a six-month-old on a, um, a train journey up to Scotland, and he cried a lot as a kid, a lot. And mum um, saw that just kind of ignored it, but he ended up having the actual green fracture. So she always felt bad, but you know, she felt good as in, hey, I've come home, kind of thing. Um, but I didn't know what to do with these remains. He came across in a casket, and so he actually stored him in a casket in my house in Hassocks. Um, and then in 2004, we had three more um, 
his uh, his fiber. And um, you know, I didn't really identify him with my brother. I mean, he can't me and mum view the remains, but we, we had a burial in 2004, which my mum was pleased about. So in 2008, another four years had passed, um, we suddenly got another call from the police and another part of Jeff had been identified. And I mean, we knew what was in the, the sort of bag casket that, that came out, but I mean, nothing really prepared me and my mum for when we opened the, the, the casket um, on a dining room table, God bless. Um, but you know, I'm a parent, I don't know how she handles that, you know, it's my brother's hair, his scalp, his bit of facial tissue, his jaw, beauty, and his ears somewhere there as well. I mean, mum was just really happy that he hadn't been burned, and she, um, you know, they handled a lot of his hair. Um, so, yeah, anyway, so initially, I guess, like, most people were in a bit of a state of shock. And um, yeah, apart from, I remember getting angry from one evening, I think I was over in the States at the time. You know, I never really wanted retribution or, you know, ah, let's go after these people. Um, and I remained relatively calm. And um, I had my own company, a software and consultancy company. And I had two co-directors, and one of my co-directors forwarded me an article, end of October, which it really, for me, was the starting point of me questioning everything about my um, you know, and I'm really grateful that he, he sent that to me. Um, it was an article by John Pilger, who used to write for The Mirror, and if you know him, he's a great journalist, and he's never stopped being that kind of, just, he speaks up, investigates stuff that needs to be investigated. But anyway, these were comments from very I think the UK and the US have been bombing Afghanistan for maybe two, Three weeks, and I read this, reread this article uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's still as powerful as I remember it being. The first time I actually thought about shit, stuff's being done in my brother's name. And uh, there's a link if you um, a website called Cobrace.org, um, you can find the John Pilger article there. Um, but I'll read just a few bits from it. So the war against terrorism is fraud. After three weeks bombing, not a single terrorist implicated in the attacks in America has been caught or killed in Afghanistan. So he goes on to talk about how they're running out of actual military targets. None of those directly involved in the September 11th atrocities have gone. Most of the Saudis who apparently did their planning and training in Germany and the United States. Bear in mind, I'm a family member reading this for the first time, just really thinking about what's going on at that time. The camps which the Taliban and our bin Laden to use were empty weeks ago. Moreover, the Taliban itself was a creation of the Americans and British. That was news to me. I, I didn't know that. In the 1980s, the tribal army that produced them was funded by the CIA and trained by the SAS to fight the Russians. It just goes on to talk about you know, the weapons we were using and, you know, 
who's basically murder and that war committed over in Afghanistan. And so this was a real just starting point for me to start just looking at the wider themes about what went on and then what went on online level also um, afterwards and also prior to that. So this might bring some growth to some people, uh, my next slide. So on my, my path, so this is still, you're talking December now, 2001, um, I started reading this chapter. Um, it was one of these sort of early books that we put out. I hadn't read any Chomsky stuff before. And it was a short collection of essays. And, you know, yeah, we, we know about the British Empire and dodgy stuff we've done, but I hadn't really thought about American imperialism and stuff like that. So it's quite eye opening to start reading his stuff. Um, because I was working in the city and taking in Chomsky books. Uh, but anyway, that's another story. Um, and then a friend of mine in February 2002 sent me a link to this story, which was in the Jerusalem Post, which was basically urging family members to sue the Saudis. Um, and I know at that point I'd started a conversation with my dad and my brother's fiance um, about joining the, uh, the Saudi lawsuits that were starting to be um, you know, talked about. And so Motley Rice, uh, my dad's a signatory to that action that's going on in the States. There's also uh, Crime and Crime is the other large um, Saudi suit that's going on. It was just, you know, so it's really extreme from friends who were already kind of aware and awake of what was going on. I just started to, to start thinking about stuff. But I really haven't before that time. I was in my nice little bubble. Um, okay, so I started to read a lot of books, and I mean a lot. You know, it's almost obsessive. At one point, I had over 150, 160 books on online. Then this is just in the first four, five years. Probably the first five years. Um, so, you know, initially I was very much interested in the trail, I was interested in the, the, the path that the terrorists had taken. This is prior to 9 11. I mean, how many did that? It's like 80, yeah. Um, but, you know, so I was really interested in that sort of side of stuff um, and, and why nothing was done about that, I guess. Um, I then started to read more books that hinted perhaps more towards a cover up, but these, you know, because they're still very mainstream, they're not what you call, I hate that word, but you know the word I'm going to say, those kind of theories, yeah. Um, and I then went on to read other books, and other books, and other books, and more books, and yeah. And that's only half, I got rid of a lot of them in Thailand, because I realised when I was, I was living there for six years, it was like, I've got more books than mine, I never know. I just offload some of them. Um, anyway, so, uh, I still am very much interested in, in books that are published. I, I find I do like watching documentaries and stuff, but I do like getting into the nitty gritty that only books can really give you, particularly if they're well researched and referenced and all the rest of it. Um, you know, lots of books that I've read, I've actually gone to the trouble to go and look at the memorandum for the record, documents that are there from the FBI, etc. They just like reading and go, okay, I believe it. Um, so, two new books out this year. Um, one is called Unanswered Questions, which is referring to the unanswered questions of the um, Family Steering Committee, the, mainly led by the Jersey girls who actually forced Bush and turned his hand to actually create the 9-11 uh, Commission in the first place. Um, and although it's, it's often touted that only 30% you know, of the um, family's uh, questions were answered, it's actually worse than that. Out of 30%, 9% were answered satisfactorily. 
and 70% went unanswered at all. It's a good book anyway. Um, and there's another book, David Gardner is, it's fairly mainstream I guess, um, and he still writes under the Evening Standard uh, Times and stuff. He doesn't like the title either, I don't really like it. As a publisher, he chose it, whether it's going to sell more books or less books or reach the right people or the wrong people, I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of factual stuff in this. Uh, and in particular, the first part of the book is the stuff that I was initially very interested in, which is the paper trail stuff, the hijackers, the, the CIA, the Saudis, etc. etc. Um, but that's an excellent book. Um, I also feature in a chapter. But yeah, anyway, it's a good book. Um, so I'd say up until 2007, my focus was really nothing to do with how the towns came down. It was more paper trail and that kind of stuff that I was interested in. Um, and it wasn't until the draft meeting, so I'd read about Bootle in 2007. It wasn't until um, the draft meeting that NIST, the, the body that was tasked with investigating the, the destruction of three towns, in particular this, this third town, Bootle 7. Um, they held a draft meeting, and you know, um, God bless the high school physics teacher just pointed out that it was very easy to show that um, this building, for about two and a half seconds, had collapsed at free fall acceleration. Um, and it was so impossible for them to ignore, it actually made it into their final report that was written uh, two, three months, or came out two, three months later. Um, they didn't explain what that meant. Um, and so they admitted that for 2.25 seconds it came down at free-fall acceleration. They said only the north face, but if you actually look at any of the footage of Building 7 coming down, you'll see that the northwest face, the west face, and the northeast face all come, they're all intact. So it's not just that north uh, roof line that comes down. Um, Beneath the crazy hair, I've been called Keith Flynn and Gargamel from the Smurf Killer. Yeah, um, I have actually got three science degrees. I've got a degree in uh, theoretical physics, a master's in applied mathematics, and a, another master's in um, scientific application software. You don't need any of that to just look at this. And where is he on the it's To know that looks kind of like stuff you see before like a controlled demolition, and there are numerous um, clips of um, news reporters on the day just reporting what their eyes are seeing, and, and probably the most famous one is the late Dan Rather, um, who has how he describes Building 7 going down, as if well-placed explosives and dynamite are bringing down a building, as you do with controlled demolition. Um, oh, and sorry, there's some of the um, bits from the final report. So stage two, hey, um, is the bit that they admit that the free fall is for um, 2.25 seconds. And God bless the American Soviet Imperial, um, which I hate in physics and stuff. Um, you can see here they've got a graph of um, the downward velocity, which is in feet per second. You've got it the, on the uh, x-axis, you've got time, and if you know about acceleration, it's um, you know, it's distance per second per second. And so you create a straight line here, and that's um, at 32.2 feet. 
um, a second per second, which is three, four acceleration, or nine, four, eight, because the left one is better because like the modern stuff. Um, but is that submitted? They just don't really describe how that's possible. Um, so, I guess, onto the tower. So, I I probably shifted my attention to the towers um, between 2009 and 2011. And forgive me, I might repeat some of what I'm going to talk about later, but I really wasn't interested in how the towers collapsed. I really wasn't. All the footage that I looked at, it was up to the point of the collapse. So when I would look in at all the pictures of the people clinging out the windows, the, the jumpers, the fallers, etc., and including those that obviously on the ground because there are images out there. You know, that's what I was interested in. I was never actually interested in the claps. I wasn't ever going to see my brother when that happened. Um, so anyway, I, I, after building seven, it's like, shit, <laughs> so, something really isn't right here. And, um, you know, subsequently, I, I don't know kind of the exact time frame, but you know, there's a, a, a very good paper written by David Chandler, the physics teacher that called NIST out building seven it's free for collapse. Um, I've got a little note that says read from Chandler's paper is a technical and collapse by the way. Um, but there's two things that are interesting. And one is the um, constant two-thirds acceleration of building of my brother's town for the first four seconds. Um, and you, if you just Google David Chandler um, constant acceleration four seconds you'll find his paper. I think it's on the Journal of 9-11 Studies or something, but it's, it's just it's a good paper to explain how that's impossible. Um, the other thing that just didn't make any sense to me, which I know um, Andy showed a picture of earlier, is just the, the angle that building two is collapsing at, and yet um, the rest of the town collapses, uh, is destroyed through its part of the most resistance. Um, oh, this is what I'm playing. God bless David Charles. What you are seeing here is what happened to the North Tower of the World Trade Center, second of three buildings to collapse on 9-11-2001. I use the word collapse, but words can be deceptive. What do you really see happening here? There's a tremendous amount of falling debris, but under the canopy of debris, you see the rapid sequence of explosive ejections of material. Some of the jets have been clocked over 100 miles per hour. I will call them explosions because it's hard to find other words to describe what we are seeing here. The explosions are not isolated and acute. They are continuous and widespread. They move progressively down the faces of the building, keeping pace with the falling debris. Perhaps you can imagine a natural cause, but I can't. Notice that the explosions are occurring on multiple floors at once, or a wide zone, not in a floor-by-floor sequence that might be explained by pancaking. Collapse. Notice there are explosions far below the point of collapse. Some are isolated and focused. These are often referred to as squibs and are commonly seen in controlled demolitions. However, this is not a standard controlled demolition. The building is being progressively destroyed from the top down by waves of explosions, creating a huge debris field. The destruction is in waves, not just in one wave. 
Most obvious is a rapid sequence of explosions near the visible corner of the building. But simultaneously, we can see another wave of explosions much further down the face of the building under the canopy of falling debris. Notice that both waves of explosions progress down the face of the building nearly keeping pace with the falling debris just a few feet away. Slabs of concrete did not fall to the ground and smash to dust. There was almost no concrete in the rubble pile. Notice that the concrete is being forcefully ejected outward from the sides of the building already pulverized to dust. Notice that embedded in the dust clouds are huge girders and entire sections of steel framing that are being hurled out of the building. The horizontal speed at some of the girders has been clocked over 70 miles per hour. Some of these girders impale themselves in the sides of the neighboring building. Some landed as much as two football fields away from the base of the tower. What could hurl heavy girders with such force and give them such speed? Some people had suggested that the weight of the tower crushing down on the girders caused them to flex, and they sprung sideways by a spring action. But we are not seeing isolated jumping girders. We are seeing a major fraction of the mass of the building, steel, concrete, office furniture, and the remains of human beings, reduced to small pieces of rubble and fine dust, and being explosively ejected in all directions. Bone fragments are found on the roofs of adjacent buildings. The bones were not crushed in the falling mass, or they would have been trapped in the debris pile. They were pulverized along with everything else and blown out in all directions. The NIST investigators have claimed that the top section of the building above the plane impact point came down like a pile driver, crushing the undamaged lower section of the building all the way to the ground. The top section of the building is, however, noticeably absent. There is nothing above the ring of explosions except for a fountain of debris. Can you see a pile driver? It does not appear that the building is being crushed by anything. The waves of destruction and explosive ejections of material are occurring over a wide zone that continues all the way to the top of what remains of the building. The scientists at NIST did not model the collapse of the towers. Their analysis was greatly flawed in many ways, but the biggest flaw was that the scope of their investigation was artificially limited. They took their analysis only to the point of initiation of collapse, as though all that followed was inevitable and needed no explanation. The scope of their investigation was artificially limited to what might have happened or could have happened to begin the collapse. What they explicitly did not take into account is what actually happened. By limiting their investigation to the natural precursors of collapse, plane damage and fire, they ruled out from the start any possibility of discovering evidence of planned demolition. In other words, anything that occurred during the collapse itself, such as the evidence we're seeing here, was explicitly scripted out of the investigation. Any analytical model of the collapse, no matter how simple or how sophisticated, is a bad model and bad science if it does not come back full circle to explain the actual observations. What do you see? Um, <clears throat> so, so, going back to um, <clears throat> Jeff's remains being identified and repatriated, um, in UK law, if someone dies in sort of suspicious circumstances, whether it be in the UK or abroad, um, an inquest is held. But if it's abroad, only if remains are repatriated. 
So um, my brother's remains that were repatriated in 2002-2004, for him, triggered a, an inquest. And he actually had his inquest alongside nine other people. Um, and I think they waited up until 2005 to get repeat remains from other people identified. Um, and so, but, you know, obviously it was adjourned all the way until January 2013. Um, and so we had this inquest. Um, yes, we had the inquest, and you know, my mother and I didn't um, attend. I, I wasn't in a good place, and I certainly didn't have the evidence and arguments to hand to, to challenge um, the findings that they, they had at the inquest. Um, but you know, the purpose of an inquiry or an inquest is, is a fact-finding mission, and uh, you know, it's who, when, where, and importantly, how did the deceased come about their death? And um, sometime afterwards, I obtained a record of the audio and actually got a transcript made um, of the inquest. And I know that the coroner heavily relied on the 9-11 Commission report, um, stuff from the FBI, um, and also from the Counterterrorism Command Group SO15 in the UK. And a report had been prepared by one of the officers in that group. So out, out of the blue, in May 2013, this is about five months after the inquest, 
Um, we had another force of police, um, more of Jeff's um, body being found. Uh, in this case, it was his upper arm. And a you know, small fragment again. And um, these were the only remains that actually had been tagged for the location. The, the fire department basically had, they had, some people had gadgets that gave a proper XY coordinate time place, uh, placement of the, of the find. And others just relied on a fairly rough grid of um, about 20 meters square that basically used pinpoint where remains were found. So these remains that were found um, in May 2013 were found in a grid K-12, which is about 20 to 40 meters outside of the south side of the North Tower. Um, they haven't been repatriated, they're still sitting in the UK, in the uh, US in a, in a repository that's in a museum. Um, it's a strange place, but we've left them there. Um, all of Jeff's other remains, bones wise, were, were uh, recovered at the landfill site. Um, his hair and his scalp and, and stuff would, had actually been found on site as early as 23rd of September 2001, but um, they didn't give an actual location. Um, and there's something rather unpleasant about why it took until 2008 to identify him. When I met with the, uh, one of the forensic anthropologists at the OCME, they basically said it's it, the only thing she could come up with, and she wasn't referring to notes, so I don't know if it's 100% true, she said it's to do with commingling, which is other people's remains were in my brother's. So they couldn't make a definitive match of, of the remains there. This is Jeff Campbell. Um, but the coming is important, I'll come on to that in a bit. Um, so as long ago as in December 2015, seems like a lifetime ago, I basically started out the idea, okay, I know if you have a, a someone's murdered remains from a patriot, can you reopen an inquest off the back of that? Um, and I knew that there was a method, um, Section 13, 1B of the 1988 Coroner's Act, allows people to challenge the findings of an inquest to reopen a new inquest. And um, I'll read from there. It says, you know, whether by reason of fraud, rejection of evidence, irregularity of proceedings, insufficiency of inquiry, the discovery of new facts or evidence, or otherwise, it is necessary or desirable in the interest of justice that another inquest should be held. Um, and so, yeah, I just started thinking, could I use those remains? Um, and so my initial intention was to apply to the Chair General for a fresh inquest, citing new evidence. Um, there's a lot of evidence uh, supporting uh, explosives and incendiaries of different views. Um, and I'd actually spoken with Michael Meacher, the late Michael Meacher. He wasn't my MP, but he suggested, um, sorry, he suggested he could help me. And he actually spoke with Dominic Green, who was the ex-Attorney General. And he basically said, yes, you, know, you should go ahead and reopen the Freud's inquest and use the remains and evidence and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, oh, I won't go into that, but yeah, basically, since Michael died, obviously, uh, I didn't have that kind of, not inside track, but route to people um, in power who do this sort of thing. But not to worry. Um, I did a small crowdfunding thing, whatever it was, and I raised sufficient funds to have an initial meeting with a barrister that had been recommended for a, a 
friend who just studied law. And um, he basically said, I, I had a case, but I needed a lot more in terms of substance to the expert witnesses, and um, I needed money. Because um, we were talking not just a few thousand quid that I initially tested uh, what I wanted to do, we were talking tens and tens of thousands of pounds, uh, and a lot of effort. And so, I, to be honest, just put it on the back burner. I think it's achievable. So if we fast forward, probably the last time I talked public about stuff, which was 2018, um, I went over to the States and uh, I've been encouraged that, that year, uh, April time. Um, the Lawyers, Inquiry, uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 uh, Inquiry had submitted a grand jury petition to the uh, Attorney General for the Southern District of New York. And anyway, they invited me over to, to speak and I spoke in Manhattan and I spoke Washington outside the Capitol and they managed to say fuck, which was good fun because that was citing one of the people from Bloody Sunday's campaign. Anyway, so on my way back um, uh, to the airport, I started a conversation with Ted Walter, who works for AE uh, of Truth, and just talking about remains and my thinking and what I tried uh, back in 2015. And yeah, and I did say to myself, look, it's the, it's the quickest way of getting the abundance of evidence out there for controlled demolition into a court floor because, you know, I didn't have much faith in how long it would take, the process would take in the States. And 20 years on, my dad still hasn't had his case yet to sound in court. Yeah. So I just thought, I know there's a mechanism, but it's going to take money. Um, anyway, it kept the dialogue going, and um, I did some other things moving towards the idea of, of trying to re-up my brother's inquest, but um, yeah, in early 2020, uh, we started discussing, yeah, okay, let's, let's do this for real. Um, he was confident through any um, supporters we could raise the funds, and so I think it was April, May, June 2020, it was like, okay, again, let's go and put some money down, put together a lot of the evidence that been garnered over the years that a and put together, put it in front of the barrister and see what he says. It was just immediately clear, you've got an abundance of evidence here, and you can easily show that there's lots of evidence that was not considered. Remember, go back to the inquest, it's a fact-finding mission about how the deceased came about his death. None of this evidence ever appeared in uh, my brother's inquest. And, and that's no slow on the coroner, you know, if anything it's against the men and the counter-terrorism people. But you know, clearly that evidence wasn't uh, wasn't brought forward. Um, so within a very short period of time, six weeks or so, um, we'd raised nearly hundred thousand um, dollars, which was sufficient to engage with what we knew would be a fairly big piece of work with the um, with the lawyer, the barrister. Um, so. So the actual application itself, um, we thought we'd kind of finish it towards the end of last year, but like everything, it always takes longer, and it just did. It was a long, long process. Um, the application um, we put together is about two and a half, just shy of 3,000 pages. Um, there's a lot of documentary evidence, there's a lot of um, video, there's audio, there's a whole bunch of stuff. We've got six expert witnesses, we have five eyewitnesses, four of whom are uh, 
uh, first responders. So we're talking, you know, firefighters, police, uh, medics, etc. Who they were part of a group of 450 first responders who um, gave statements either on the day or in the days afterwards, um, and completely unprompted, 150 of the 450 all talked about explosions going off, some seeing uh, explosives or, or lights flashing. But then there's a lot of them. None of that made that into any of the official uh, inquiries. But for me, it's, you know, it's really important that 20 years on, these people who were first responders are still willing to, to be in court, to be under oath and to be cross-examined in a court of law. Um, we also have um, support from family members, both in the US and the UK. I won't list them, but you know, um, I'm grateful that they have um, supported what we're doing as a family. It's not just me, I should say. It's my mum, my dad, my brother Rob, and my brother's fiance, um, Caroline, who have um, submitted the application to join me. So, um, on the 26th of August, we submitted the application to the then acting Attorney General Michael Ellis, who was standing in for Suella Braverman, who's been on uh, maternity leave this year. Um, and we also submitted the application to um, the senior coroner, Mr. Chimier Inyama, at uh, West London Coroner's Court. And the reason why we've done both is there's a peculiar uh, route where, and I'll go through the traditional one, which is we've petitioned the Attorney General. Although it's now Suella Braven, she came back to work last week. Um, if she grants her authority, she can push our request up to the High Court, and in theory, they're looking for the same law and the same conditions. We've not found a case where they haven't pushed it on to the Coroner's Court. So, you know, that first hurdle is getting that authority granted by the Attorney General. Um, and then, assuming the High Court just follows the same. Path that the Attorney General's taking, we would then see it in the coroner's court. But there's also another route, which is the senior coroner can actually just look at what our application, look at the abundance of evidence, look at the insufficiency of inquiry, and go, Yep, I'm going to sign the consent order, and we can actually fast track this. We don't need to go through the Attorney General High Court route. Um, but right now, what we're doing is waiting. People are asking how long, I don't know, three months, six months, nine months. It's very hard to gauge. It's, it's quite complex submission as you can appreciate. Um, you know, we're not talking about maybe one doctor, an autopsy, and someone got killed in a, in a police cell. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, you know, certainly outside of probably the normal teams that the Attorney General would rely on. Um, so yes, the way to tell us, my brother Rob, um, my mum, and myself outside the um, chambers uh, of uh, Downey Street. But yeah, so they're the two physical applications. It was also submitted electronically. Um, the, the total application is about five gigabyte. If you um, so there was some mainstream coverage, um, in particular, um, I'd say the Daily Mail. Um, Sue Reed's always been kind of keen to cover uh, what I'd be doing, what we'd be doing as a family, in particular with the inquest. Um, it's also been some coverage in the, the Mirror, um, the Daily Express, likewise. I think that the 
journalists who did it the daily uh, express piece had done something a few years back. Um, there was some sort of local BBC radio stuff um, in the Sun and the Telegraph. Um, also, um, was approached by GB News to do a, a short sort of television interview. Um, I think they only sort of aired about one and a half minutes, but there is actually a longer clip of about seven or eight minutes that the uh, reporter actually put on his own channel. Um, it's different from the, the, the draft that I saw, which was about nine minutes long, which included the bit where I talk about the free fall collapse of Building 7 and the fact that I've got crazy hair, but I do actually have three degrees. Um, it's a shame that I didn't make it. And if you look at the comments on social media about my hair, a lot of people can see past it. One of those ECD cover ups. Alright, so I'm never going to run out of time. Um, there's a new film.
Sorry, I didn't realise that was so quiet. Um, the key thing that he's saying there is, first of all, his first impression looking at the autopsy report of um, Bobby uh, McIlvain. And just to describe what's there, he's, I think he's missing an arm. Uh, his complete lower part of his um, face is missing from his nose. And yeah, and he's got sort of um, you know, injuries to, to the front of his torso. But his, the back of his head is just, it's got slight bruising, nothing. And, and he's just, this is not, this has to be from an explosive effect. And although it's not in the clip there, I mean, this guy said, Papa, he's very senior, 
um, I think was the forensic pathologist for the largest chemical explosion in the States. He knows what victims of explosions look like. And so it's very clear, and it was interesting to see when they filmed and interviewed him, he was looking at the autopsy and he was already guessing what was going to be on the subsequent pages because he said, I can guess that the head's still intact at the back, you know, whatever, because just the way. Anyway, he, um, yeah, I won't say anymore. I mean, he will be part of um, the inquest um, of my brother, um, but this will happen quite late in the day. So, anyway, but. I think it's quite significant. The film, by the way, is, is really, really good. It's been done in such a way that I don't think they really talk about physics at all. It's, you know, it's a very different A&E film. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's also a personal film. I mean, I'm really glad my brother and my mum are, are in it. Um, and just documenting, I guess, what we're doing. And also my friend, who was the one that woke me up, is, is in the film as well. And, um, yeah, so if you, if you haven't, if you didn't manage to catch the preview when it comes out properly, um, it's definitely worth watching. I think we're going to run out of time. Let me just see where I'm at. Um, so that's just the trailer. Uh, right, I'm going to have some Let me just play, play the trailer because there's. Um, oh, let's go back. Right, here we go. It's only one minute, Andy, and then I'll, I'll call it a day. Ah! Here we go. Oh, so awful, and almost unimaginable that the ability of words to capture. It's a void that exists even before uttering the unspeakable. <clears throat> this is his fear to say, Ken, put him in the way so he can be so This is about it that they fit and they had. Nothing was ever found on my mother, so nothing to go on as far as physical evidence for her person. And Drew is a a man on a mission. This is what I do for Frank. And Frank's gone and nothing's going to bring him back. He's, 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 he's history. And we're talking, you know, people being polarized into dust. We know that 40%, it's 1100 and something, people have not been identified. I think, I don't know, we probably haven't got time for Q&A and we've got to be out there and my heart ten. Um, but I'm heading to the pub afterwards. <laughs> I mean, um, can I just say, yeah. I mean, if you, while we're packing the chairs, Matt, if you're happy to go to the back and yeah, you can go and have a chat with him. Yeah. That's, that's probably the best way forward here. But is there anything like say closing? Uh, not really, apart from, you know, it, it is just a case of uh, waiting and, and just to see what happens. Um, I mean, if, if there were, if there was no geopolitics and all the rest of it, then it should be really straightforward. We are so above the threshold of what is needed to get a new inquest open. It's it's ridiculous, um, you know. So I'm, I'm confident that if it is looked in a very objective manner, then we will actually get this uh, inquest reopened, and you know that evidence will go into to court, which it should have been in the first place. Yeah. Okay. The information will under forces strike the edge of ecology.